Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, our listeners, like you, are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches and consultants and mentors. We have the folks who help others create their businesses. And on the other side of that same coin, the do-it-yourselfers like to have your own hands on the levers. If you are one or more of the above, and many of our listeners like me are all of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we serve you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, be sure to check us out on networks such as iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. You'll get fresh content every single week and immediate access to over 260 episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you. So here's what we're finding in our fast-moving economy and the evolution of the environment of business is some organizations can shift ahead to stay relevant and others can't. So we're going to take some time today and we're going to dissect that and we're going to look into some of the reasons why this happens, why it seems that some organizations have that relevancy factor and others kind of get left behind. And we can think in the news of some examples of companies that got left behind or some that have been able to adapt with the times. So we're going to do some case studies. We're going to look at some examples of how some of this works. We're going to look at some actual leaders and how they dealt with the environment of business. And to walk us through that, I'm very happy to have with us today a gentleman named Alan Anderson, excuse me, Alan Adamson, which is one I definitely should know because my name is Adam. So Alan Adamson, who has a very exciting book out called Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in the Fast-Changing World, is somebody who you definitely are going to want to enjoy listening to today. And just to tell you a little bit about Adam, Alan Adamson, oh my goodness gracious. You know what else is funny? is uh, When I was in college, my nickname was Big Al because my signature at the time looked like the word Alan. So Alan Adamson is a noted industry expert in all disciplines of branding. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Metaphors.co and the author of Brand Simple, Brand Digital, The Edge, 50 Tips from Brands That Lead, and of course, Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Prior to Metaphors, Alan was chairman, North America, of Landor Associates, which is a global branding firm that some of us have, in fact, heard of. So, Alan Adamson, come on in. The weather's fine. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, it was easy for me to get your name right. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, uh, but lots of people call me Alan Adamson, uh, Adam Allenson, so join the crowd. Oh, I mean, my last name is Homie. You know how many people have butchered that or used it for fun? Yeah, oh, yeah I'm sure gracious. you had a tough time in high school with that. <laughs> well, see, see, now you're now you're dating me, but you're doing so accurately. That uh, show in Living Color came out uh, when I was in middle school. Now, if I had had more of a sense of humor, my life might have been a little bit different. Exactly, exactly. And you, uh, yeah, and you want to hear, you want to hear one other irony. Back in those days, everybody could get my name right. Even complete strangers would just walk up to me, and they always got my name right. But here in 2018, you know, near the end of the second decade of the 21st century, when that television show is well nigh 30 years behind us, 
Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, like a distant memory. You know how badly that. Yeah, you know how badly that name gets butchered these days? I mean, I had somebody manage to – I mean, it's a six-letter last name, and I had somebody manage to make three mistakes with it. Oh, they're better than four, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. So let's uh, – so before we get into the, the core of what we're going to cover today, and I am very excited about this shift-ahead concept. I've had an opportunity to look into it, and I see some of the stuff you want to share with us today. It's going to be very exciting and very revelational. Let's take a step back, Alan, and just tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, what's brought you through your career, your business, your entrepreneurship, even something that's driven you personally, and what's brought you to where you are today serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, I started off, uh, no one grows up to uh, go into business uh, consulting or brand consulting. I started off always right. going to be a filmmaker, and a uh, funny thing happened. Uh, lots of producers in Hollywood didn't call me up and say, here's a big job. So I went back to school, did a little bit more, and then I uh, I made small films. Uh, not really made them, but I went into the advertising business. If your listeners ever watch Mad Men, it was uh, not quite that far back and not quite like it was portrayed in Mad Men, but uh, we had to figure out how to tell a story in 30 seconds, and sometimes you actually got to film it. Did that for a while, and then I went to uh, do marketing at what they call the consumer goods companies. I worked on uh, bar soaps and detergents and dishwashing liquids, which uh, don't sound too exciting, and in fact they're not, but they're good ways to learn marketing because the difference, I should not say this uh, publicly, but between one soap and the next is not that big. And so why you choose one or the other is driven lots by marketing and less by how well they clean. Uh, and after doing that for a bit, uh ended up in uh, brand consulting at Landor and had a great time because it got me working across many categories, B2B, big companies, small companies, nonprofits. And um you know, when you get the chance to work across many industries, you learn a few things from each of them you work at. Right. And I think I think that's very true. So, uh, you know, actually, you know, let's take a step, another step back, and let's start from the beginning of the Shift Ahead thing. You created this great book, which is called Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. So what drove you to write that book? It was um, it was over time. I began to we began to encounter more and more clients who say, "Can you help me on marketing? We're not selling enough. Our sales are falling. Can you help me get more famous? And uh, people aren't buying us as much." And uh, many many times, it wasn't a question. It became clear it wasn't a question of marketing. It wasn't a question of not having the right ads or the right promotions or the right logos or the right social media. It was a their their business was irrelevant. They were becoming their father's Oldsmobile, and you know no amount of marketing could make somebody want uh, your father's Oldsmobile. And so right. as as you know as the number of people ringing a doorbell saying help me, my sales are falling. It became clear that gee, mere was it was it my imagination or was it more and more companies were having trouble keeping up and were falling behind. So that. Caused me to say, let me take a break. Um, I partnered with a professor from NYU, and we ended up doing a lot of research. We spoke to lots of companies, uh, looked at lots of organizations, and found out that, yeah, um, more and more companies are uh, ending up in the headlines you read every day, whether it's Sears going bankrupt or Barnes & Noble struggling to stay in business or P&G cutting its workforce or um, you know, dozens and dozens of headlines every day about companies that were once king of the hill, which were no longer uh, king of the hill. 
Yeah, you know, I wanted to you know find out what, what, what was it my imagination? What, what was causing it? Why everyone knows you need to stay change to stay relevant. You, you don't have to be a genius to know that if you do the same thing for a hundred years, it's unlikely you'll be <laughs> as popular uh, today as you were a hundred years ago. But so everyone knows you need to change to stay current and fresh. But why, if everyone knows it, do so many people struggle with doing it? Yeah, that's very interesting to think about. And I'll tell you, in my work, the moment I hear somebody say, well, that's the way we've always done it, I think, oh, no. Because when I hear that when I hear that phrase, what crosses my mind is, yeah, and somehow you still managed to be here even though you did it that way yesterday. Exactly. You know, and sometimes you've been around a long time is an important signal of trust. Do you, right. you trust companies that have been sure. in business a long time? And that's you know important, but not as important as perhaps it used to be, and not a reason. The only reason you get to get people to buy your products, I just without picking on somebody right now, but recently Ford just launched a new campaign, and I love the ad with Brian Cranston, Crenzel. Uh, but they just talk about how they've been building real cars for 115 years, and that's interesting. But if I go to the showroom and I don't find anything I like, the fact that they you know were building it since the Model T, probably not going to get me to buy one. Right. Very true. Very true. So what are some, let's kind of dive in here, and what are some ways, since we're talking about relevance, that one can keep their business relevance in this ever-fast-changing world where it seems like things are just speeding up? You know, first I think, you know, your listeners need to realize that uh, the, the tide's swimming against them. You know, they just have to realize that there's some things that make changing hard. Uh, and keeping up hard. And, and one of them is most of us are like um, Marty Crane on the old TV show Frasier. If you recall yeah. or your listeners recall, you know, he had his old chair in Frasier's apartment. And and that's because the familiar is more comfortable. People are just generally more comfortable doing what they did yesterday than changing. And, you know, it, it seems obvious, but most, you know, you have to remember that, if be self-aware that if you're aware that you're going to go to the office and do what you did yesterday, and you're more likely to do that than do something different, uh, you realize you're starting in the end zone. <laughs> uh, and so part of it is looking inside and saying, gee, if I do the same thing every day of the year and I've done the same thing for 10 years, hmm, I wonder what that may be about, and I need to get comfortable trying something new, or I may end up you know, being like Marty Frazier. Right. Very true. Very true. Um, so go ahead. No, no, and so that's a good place to start, and 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 there are a lot of other you know constraints that that uh, that make it hard to change just before you even get into anything else. And the other one is um, most public companies uh, have what we found out to be something you know, like golden handcuffs. There's a huge pressure if you follow the, the business world of you know delivering for today. Doing the making your numbers this quarter, and as such, it's really hard if you're in a big company to make a long-term bet. So, you know, besides Marty Crane's chairs, most of people in corporate America are wearing golden handcuffs or wearing handcuffs that uh, um, that prevent you to succeed. And the third thing is that you know, by the time many many people decide, oh, I better change. <laughs> It's often too late. They've run out of money. <laughs> you know, three of their competitors have beaten them. But the, the time Barnes and Noble realized Amazon was going to be a problem, 
Barnes & Noble, you know, saw them coming. They, they looked at their business. They could have bought Amazon, but they decided, ah, right. who's going to who's going to buy books online? But by the time they decided, oh my goodness, we need to do something, you know, their business was free falling, and there was no, it was too late. There was no, uh, there was there was no fuel left in the tank. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, uh, what does it take? Because we're looking at the companies as a whole, but now let's look at the individuals. So what does it take for some individuals in the organizations, as well as the organizations themselves, to embrace this idea of relevancy to stay relevant in such a fast-changing business environment? Well, one of the things we, you know, we also found that you know, when you talk about the individual, most people are very fixated on what's happening right in front of their nose. Or most people are very fixated on what's happening with their direct competitors. So, um, if you have a you know store on one corner, you're looking across at the other guy across the street, and what are they doing? What are you know? And if when I was uh, at Unilever, uh, I was very worried about what P&G was doing and what Colgate was doing. Uh, when I worked with Pepsi, I was very focused on what Coke was doing and why is Coke doing this and we should do that. And most people, you know, are very uh, very good at uh, paying attention to what's right in front of them, uh, and that's important uh, because you know understanding who your competition is and why you know what they're doing right is is important. Um, but we refer to it more like you know a lot of people are playing a lot of tennis, and in tennis, which I play badly, you have to really pay attention to your opponent. You have to try to hit the ball when they're not. You have to, you know. But yeah. one of the things we found that was a successful tool for individuals is. Play a little less tennis and play a little more golf. Look back, look at the ball, see what the environment looks around, look at the wind, look at the terrain. Um, because oftentimes, change in your business does not come from the, if you've got a dry cleaning store, from the dry cleaning store down the, down the block. <laughs> you know, Disruption does not come from direct competitors. If you look what's happening in the marketplace, if you look at almost any company that's having trouble, Gillette has run into trouble. And for years, uh, they were just focused on why their razor was better than Schick, and if we had four blades, Schick had four blades, and Schick said five blades, and Gillette said five blades, and and they were really focused on you know how do you beat the direct competitor, and of course they weren't paying attention uh, off to the side when uh, Harry's came in or you know, other direct um, uh, business models, and they've got their clock clean. So lots of companies stay very and individuals stay very focused on their direct competitor, and don't. Uh, you know, pay attention to the peripheral, to, to zoom out a bit um, and uh, look around them as if they're playing golf versus intensely focusing on the business right in front of their nose from their competitor. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, as you mentioned that, about the uh, number of blades in the razor blade or what have you. Is Just yeah. as I was thinking of that, I went to my computer and I was reminded of an article that came out on The Onion, which is a satirical site, 14 years ago at this point. I didn't realize it was that long. And the and, and the, and the title of it is, uh, you'll get what the first word is, but it's F everything, we're doing five blades. And it's, uh, and it's uh, supposedly from the CEO of the Gillette Company saying that, you know, basically we're going to five blades. Some people are doing three, some people are doing four, and some people are doing five. And you know what? I mean, we may be at a point. I'd have to look in the store, but we might be actually getting close to eight blades at this point. 
Right, and everyone was you know thinking that was the game. You know, if the competitor had six plays, let's go to six. They go to seven. We'll go. But you know, to some extent, there that's important because if you didn't offer that, you were going to lose some market share. But what changed was somebody said, well, maybe blades aren't that important. Maybe maybe if I just mail everyone a razor when there's wear out and I do it for less price, that will be more important than the, than the number of blades. So you know. Well, it's yes. It's always start. You know, you look at any business school class. You know, pay. You know, look at your competition, analyze their strengths and weaknesses. That's still important. But if you get too fixated on it, um, you can get disrupted, and somebody else is going to yeah. shift ahead of you. And so you bring up something right there. I think you're referring to the Dollar Shave Club, where they will yeah. uh, mail you updated blades and shaving cream and everything every month and yeah you know another market that's out there that i think we're going to see more and more but i'm predicting this right now is you know those disposable blades actually have a usable life of up to five years if you take care of them (laughs) doesn't surprise me but i i didn't know that but thanks adam for sharing that so it's very true very true if yeah and there there are articles that teach you how to use denim to clean out the blades and there are articles that teach you how to properly use a toothbrush to clean out the blades without slicing up the toothbrush but my prediction is somebody's going to come out with something that's going to enable you to clean your blades so that they're sharp for years to come i personally know how to do this i mean i i mean i use disposable blades but i've been using the same five blades in rotation for about three years now uh Mm -hmm. it's just i mean i just look at i just look at it as uh aside from the fact that you know, saving me twenty dollars a month, in essence, which is money well saved, that it's also good for the environment because otherwise I'm throwing away a bunch of perfectly good razor blades, and that's just silly. So I have a system for doing it, and maybe I could market that system, or maybe somebody else will come along. That's my prediction. That's my exactly. Prediction so instead of asking if you ask a consumer, if you ask a consumer what's most important on a razor blade today, they'll say, you know, four or five blades, and has to be sharp, and you have to replace it every month, and it has to get a good price. Yeah. But if you zoom out a bit. And say, you know, what's really important, you're going to get a bunch of consumers saying, well, I don't want to, uh, you just said waste money, or I don't want to, uh, I want to do what's socially responsible. I, you know, we've got enough landfill, you know, you know, we need to be more concerned with our environment. And all of a sudden, if there's a razor blade that self-sharpens and, is, you know, lasts for five years and is good for the environment, well, you know, gee, I don't care how many blades the other guy has, you know, I, I want to go that direction. Yeah, very true. So that's my prediction is we're going to see something hit the market in a big way that's about how to clean and preserve your existing disposable razor blades. That's my prediction. Right. Yep. So let's and that's go, another, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. That's another, you know, besides paying too much attention to their competition and, you know, only doing, you know, following, just matching them and playing that five-blade, four-blade, three-blade, eight-blade. You know, lots of people get a really fixed worldview. They, you know, they, they look at the world and say, this is the way it is, and this is reality. And they run everything based on their sense of what the world is. And we had a great conversation with uh, uh, the folks at National Geographic, a publication that I, you know, I grew up with. And, you know, they viewed their mission as, you know, to increase and, de- you know, spread geographic knowledge. And they viewed their world as, you know, our job is to, you know, capture this and to uh, produce a magazine. And um, that's the business we're in. And um, despite that, um, 
and they had a huge lead since 18 and 18, and one of those been around for a long time. They almost didn't make it because they, their, their view was so fixed on they, they were in the magazine business. They didn't think of the, what they're really doing is maybe a little different, and they almost disappeared. But they ended up doing a couple smart things to reimagine. It's you know a very famous idea that they they weren't myopic. They zoomed out a bit to say you know you know we could do a magazine, but what are we really about? And what they really were about was understanding nature and appreciating nature and the environment. And and they figured that out just in time to reinvent their business in many ways that uh, makes them very relevant and powerful today. Yeah, you can still go to the store and buy a National Geographic magazine. I go to Whole Foods. I see a, I see a Nat Geo in the, in the rack almost every time I'm there. But when I think of Nat Geo realistically today, I think of either, well, yeah, remember they used to say National Geographic, and you just heard me say Nat Geo because yeah. they've done such a great job of making you think of, the, of, of Nat Geo, which is their TV network. Right, TV, and they also did a joint venture with a, a cruise line. So now, if you're lucky enough, you can get on a National Geographic boat and go up to Alaska, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, have a National Geographic photographer help you take the incredible picture of the whale breaching, whether you're using, you know, your 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 phone or whether you're using a camera. You can go on hikes and look at uh, the, the the bears feasting off the salmon, and somebody from National Geographic will explain. Explained, you know, the, the biodiversity of the area, and, and so it's educational. So they've taken that from the magazine and let you become your own National Geographic explorer. And of course, when you're out there, you know, snapping pictures of your iPhone of incredible whales breaching in front of you, you know, what do you do? You put it on social media, and all of a sudden, everyone's social media is filled with. No one's going to say, "I just read, did some really." Think I did something really exciting, Adam. I read a magazine, but you know, if you've got an yeah. incredible picture of the whale, you're going to say, "Hey, look at this great picture I took out in Alaska. I did it with the help of a National Geographic photographer who took, got my finger in front of the lens and took it away. <laughs> Whatever they did to make you get the perfect picture, and you're going to share it, and it becomes an experience you can share. So they they were able to zoom out uh, in time to save the brand from a fixed right. view. Exactly, and I think that's great. So National Geographic is one great example. And let's look at a few other companies. Uh, I know you, in, you know, throughout some of your interviews and your books, you mentioned companies like Kodak, Marriott, Toys R Us, which has been very much in the news, and Xerox. And just you know, from an overview, overview view, what are some of the things, Alan, that they did right and what are some of the things they did wrong? Well, you know, one of the things, we, we went back and did a lot of research into, you know, Kodak used to be king of the hill for your listeners old enough to remember. Uh, they owned photography, and all of a sudden, um, uh, their cheese moved. Uh, you know, and they, you know, I always thought that they just didn't see the digital revolution coming. They were just happily making film and selling it around the world. And and to our surprise, when we did the research, we found out that, you know, gee, they they had some really good market forecasters, and they knew almost to the month. Years in advance, there would be this day in time, five years from now, when film wouldn't be the way people take pictures anymore. So they knew this train was coming down the track right at them. And I said, well, that's even worse. Couldn't they get out of the way? Didn't plenty of time. They had lots of money. And what happened? And, you know, a piece of it was um, – many. of course, it's never just one thing that takes a company from top of the hill to – to almost out of business, it's many things. Right. But in this case, you know, their their culture, their strength was in the 
marketing and sales, they were a chemical company because film was a chemical process. And even though they had lots of digital technology, their culture, their natural strength, their DNA, as we say, was more of a chemical company. And so they, they, had, a, they had a decision. They had some chemical companies they owned. They owned some pharma companies. And they finally said, we're going to go digital. We're going to sell all those companies that made chemical things from aspirin to, uh, to raw chemicals, and we're going to go digital. But their core DNA was still a chemical company. So it's sort of like, you know, I could take basketball lessons and I could learn all the techniques by watching lots of videos. But at, you know, 5'9", I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be a good basketball player. So, you know, companies need to play to what their strengths are. Even if you know you have to become something else, you have to have the DNA and the strength. So um, one is, you know, just knowing what's coming is not enough. If you need to make that big a shift... And there are many, many other examples of companies that, that tried to do that. Um, you, you need to make sure to either find people that know how to do that or, you know, go to basketball camp and, and really learn uh, and, and try your best. Because just saying you want to be in a different business doesn't mean you'll be successful. Right. So that's, you know, uh, that was an interesting thing about Kodak. Um, another thing that happened that, you know, uh, that lots of people – fall to that uh, reminds me of Kodak was, you know, there's often when you're very successful, you get very arrogant. You believe you're the best, you know, yeah. um, we know what we're doing, <laughs> we're great. And we had some interesting conversations with uh, uh, people who worked at BlackBerry many years ago. And if you're, again, your listeners think back, BlackBerry used to be the way lots of people in business communicated. Everyone had a BlackBerry business because it was it had a keyboard and and you could send emails with it and people were saying that's the way I communicate and and um when we said didn't didn't you see the change coming and they said no we asked consumers what they wanted and they said they liked their keyboard and they liked their blackberry and and we looked at that music player that was being launched by this firm in uh, Cupertino, and yeah, and they'll say no one's going to give up their real business tool, but yeah, that's a toy. <laughs> no one's going to be, you know. So they were arrogant. They didn't think, you know, iPhones would be real. Same with Nokia, who owned the phone business, and they were going out and doing research, and they had the huge cell phone. And they say, would you pay three hundred dollars for a cell phone? And people say, no, I'll pay fifty nine dollars. And so they got arrogant. And no one's going to pay that much money for that. And of course they. They were asking the wrong questions, as we should know in hindsight. And of course, people would pay you know more than fifty nine dollars if they had a handheld computer versus a place to make phone calls. So, you know, arrogance and you know um, and being, you know not really believing that you know the change could be coming uh, is another reason lots of companies end up like um, Toys R Us or or BlackBerry. Yeah, and you know, I I remember when I first started having cell phones. Boy, it seemed like for the first five years I had a cellular, the only option really out there was Nokia. Like, yep. I mean, I know there are other brands out there, but that's what I maybe it's because I just hooked onto Nokia and I like the type of mm-hmm. phones they have. But when I think about it, almost everybody I knew had a Nokia. Yep, they they owned it, and then there right. then there we go. And uh, and so tell us about Toys R Us. You know, they've been in the news lately. Yeah, tough tough times right now. You know, they they ran into yet another. Again, as I said, there's never just one thing. If it were one thing, most people could say, "Oh, let's not do that." But the Toys R Us, you know, there were many things going on at Toys R Us. But one of the challenges they had was that 
inside they couldn't decide which way to go. They knew they had to beat Amazon or Walmart on price, so they had lots of their stores set up to try to win on price, which the toys piled to the ceiling and, you know, just, you know, buy one, get one free, and they were really trying to compete on the price front. But there also was a group of people, and the people in the management said that we need to do a high-end experience. And so they had some some flagship stores like the one in Times Square where, and high-end stores where you could actually go in and ask somebody, look, you know, I have a nine-year-old, uh, what do you recommend? And they would be, they knew the toy category. They would take you around. They would explain things. Um, and so the, the, half the company wanted to go super high-end. Uh, half the company wanted to try to win the price war. Um and they got into what's often called, you know, analysis paralysis. You know, we'll do both. We are not sure. And uh, unfortunately, if you try to do two things, you end up often being okay at both, but not great at one. <laughs> so they uh, and and while they were trying to figure out which way to go, high end, really good customer care, or you know, try to out out Amazon or out Walmart. Walmart. Um, they. Um, they got run over. <laughs> they got run over on yeah. both sides by small little toy stores that, you know, survived on Main Street to give a customer an intimate thing, or the other marketers, whether it's Target or anyone else getting back into the toy business. And, um, and of course, they got run over by Amazon, who, who continues to make most retailers challenging. And, and to this day, um, you know, there's probably a business need for a toy store. Uh, and Toys R Us is probably the brand most people recognize. But just having awareness, just being saying, oh, I've heard of that brand, <laughs> that's the other thing. You know, if you, lots of people say, oh, if I just had some awareness, if people could only, you know, remember my name, uh, I'd be okay. And uh, y- yes, that's important. But if people only remember your name, but they don't think you're different in a way they care about, all that name awareness doesn't mean much of anything. Wow. See, that that's something. And, you know, this brings up a, a related question. You mentioned Amazon and you mentioned uh, other online retailers and the impact they're having on bricks and mortar retailers, which is very much when we think of Toys R Us, we think of, hey, let's go to the toy store and let's play with the toys and then buy some. And we see all these online retailers and what they're doing to bricks and mortar, what they're doing to shopping malls, for instance. Now, yep. I'm going to speak for myself personally, and I may not speak for everyone, but I speak for me, is if I'm going to buy, let's say, for example, clothing, I don't want to, you know, guess my size and then, you know, order something and, you know, say I want it in this size and then have to get it in the mail and, and try it on. And, and even though maybe it's my size, you know, the cut of it or the style of it just doesn't flatter me and then I have to send it back. I don't want to go through three, you know, three rounds of exchange to get the suit I want. I don't want to go through two rounds of exchange to get the jeans I want. I want to try them on, get the pair I want, walk out with them, and be done with it. Do you think that there's going to be room in the marketplace for bricks and mortar retail? You, know, I think, I think there definitely will be room. Although I think it's going to vary by category. <laughs> you know, it's you, you may do that for uh, for jeans, but if you want to buy batteries, you probably don't need to go to the store to pick up the batteries and see if they're shiny silver or shiny shiny gold. So, um, And I think the, the nature of retail, because you know, ironically, as I'm sure your listeners know, Amazon is getting into retail. So there are more and more Amazon stores popping up. 
And there are a couple of different concepts they're testing, not only, you know, Amazon bookstores, but Amazon stores that just stock the most popular items on Amazon. So if you want to see the top 50 trending items, you can go in the store and actually experience it. So so I, I think the retail will have to change, or it is already changing. It'll probably need to change more. And it will have to change uh, by category, and it will probably change to be more experiential. So if you end up going into an Amazon bookstore, you know, you probably don't want books piled to the ceiling, and, you know, you're not going there to get the cheapest price. You're going there to, to browse, to maybe talk to someone who can tell you, you know, what do you recommend in a good thing, or you, you, to touch and feel it. You're going there for the for the, for the the cappuccino, maybe, <laughs> not for, you know, can I get this book for six ninety nine? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, a book is pretty much a book, so yeah. I, I appreciate you taking the time to – to bifurcate this and give us a level of understanding. I mean, what I'm just saying is I is I really hope we don't get to a situation where we can't go to a clothing store and try on clothes because I'm not going to be very happy in that case. Yeah, I don't think we're heading totally to that. But uh, unfortunately, if you go to, uh, as you know, if you go down the main street or go to a mall, not every store is a clothing store. So, <laughs> you know, there's still going to be a lot of challenges for many, many of the other uh, uh Retails, but you know, I just think you have to um, not just look at what your other uh, retailers are doing, but you have to um, zoom out and say, you know, how can I reimagine my business uh, in a way that's relevant today? Um, right. Which you know, which is easier said than done. You know, part of part of um, another successful criteria that if you look at people that are tend to be better shifting ahead and those that struggle with it is the ability to, you know, to sometimes, you know, get away from their desk and look outside and look at the marketplace and get out of, as as the phrase goes, get out of their bubble. So not just go, you know, to your same coffee shop, the same bookstore, the same grocery store every day, but to get out of your neighborhood, to look what's going around, you know, to to start zooming out a bit. Uh, because change doesn't, as I said earlier, happen often right in front of your nose. And to see it, you have to look for it. True. So inside your book, Alan, you mentioned leaders such as John Sexton of NYU mm-hmm. and Bill Marriott. Uh, what What is it that brought you to include those in the Shift Ahead book, and what can we learn from them? Yeah, we we spoke to lots of leaders, um, and, and in general, um, you know, the ones that do well are pretty clear. What what I what I was looking for was stories for that were a little different. But what you know, what, you know, Bill Marriott um, uh, and the Marriott organization, you know, they're pretty. Even though the, the their market is also changing, and you, know, you can say, well, it's the difference in hotels. Like, you know, one hotel's like the next, and you know that is a that is a challenge because uh, it used to be people wanted a homogenous experience. You wanted to wake up in Kansas and then wake up in St. Louis and not feel like any different. Now everyone wants to go to a hotel which has a unique experience. So that's changing. But you know, one of the phrases that was often used to describe Bill Marriott tying back to the point I was talking about earlier, was they said that Bill Marriott's feet never touched his desk. He was he was always out in the hotels, always out talking to customers, always out talking to their front desk people. How are we doing? What's going on? So, you know, part of his leadership style was not to be 
in an office, in a conference room, reading numbers, but was to go out and see what was going on. You know, he had a bit of what's called a founder's mentality because he was a founder. Oh, and a founder mentality, when you start a business, you're always you know, worried that are people going to buy it? Are they going to like this you know, tuna fish or not going to like this tuna fish? Are they going to like the food in my restaurant? So um, Bill Marriott never lost this sense of, um, you know, getting out and talking and listening and seeing the fringes and talking to their customers. And so that's one characteristic of a um, uh, strong leader. Another characteristic we found, and I'll come back to the NYU question in a second, is that typically when you're going back to um, Toys R Us, you know, they couldn't decide if they wanted it to be a high-end intimate toy experience or a cheap one. The answer, which way to go, is it's never obvious. You know, often both roads look cloudy <laughs> and bumpy, yeah. and um, and so uh, sometimes a leader has to say, "Look, you know, I think this is the way, this is where we're going to go, and here's what we're going to do." And if they start early enough and they execute well against, they're better off than trying to figure out the answer because by the time the answer becomes certain, everyone sees it, <laughs> and then it may be too late. So. Another characteristic was the ability to trust their instincts or trust their judgment and make a decision and not say, well, let's let's, let's put it on a committee and study it some more or let's field another research study. Uh, <laughs> leaders that, you know, because, you know, there's a bit, it's risky and you need to be, you know, comfortable under risk. One of the um, leaders I spoke to was uh, uh, Ed Vick, who ran a big ad agency, and I said, you yeah. know, so you know, what did you do to, to, to shift their business ahead? He said, well, yeah, I, I, I was in the military when I was uh, a young kid, and I was on a boat being shot at. <laughs> and, you know, that's life and death. And whether we make our quarter or miss our quarter, you know, no one's going to yeah, – it's going to be – I want to do well, but it's not a life and death decision. So when you're in the military, you learn how to make life and death death decisions, and you tend to be more risk comfortable. You you know, you you say, let's close this door, let's move on. And he said that was, you know, part of my uh, uh, to be cool under fire was another uh, way he phrased it. So I think, you know, those are other criteria. And the final one I'll just close with the is that if you have a leader who knows where they want to go and is cool under fire, they need to be able to communicate that and tell the people on their team, we're going to go this way or we're going to go that way. Because, you know, if you're lost in the woods and somebody says, let's go this way, you might say, well, I don't know, John. You know, I, that like, you know, so if people aren't sure, and it won't be clear that's the right way to go until way down the road. So a good leader needs to be able to explain why he wants to go to the or she wants to go to the road on the left. And if she says the left is the right way to go, she has to or he has to be able to you know, quickly articulate their vision. And so with NYU, the president of NYU at that point had to reinvent NYU. And he had a, a vision for what a university and his ideas for what NYU had to become. And his view was rather than build walls around the NYU campus and make a, a traditional campus at NYU, NYU needed to be what he called in and of the city. It needed to integrate with New York City. It had to be 
totally woven together so they wouldn't be a grassy campus and you build high walls. And that led to his philosophy about embracing everything about New York and making New York part of the educational experience, um, which ultimately helped New York NYU become a, a stronger school. Uh, but that was that was not widely shared among the you know people who uh, the professors and the academic people at uh, at NYU. But he had an incredible what I'll call storytelling ability. He could spend 20 minutes with you and explain why embracing New York City at a time New York City was not uh, not much to be embraced, why that was the right right way to go. And so a good leader needs to be able to get people to come with them on their journey. Yeah. And and that's very very interesting because a lot of times when we do think of universities, for instance, we – do think that they are behind walls. I went to Penn State myself, and mm-hmm. the main campus, I don't want to say it's exactly integrated with the borough of State College, but it's not like Penn State is behind this big wall. And what's also been very interesting about Penn State, especially over the past 20 years since I graduated, is the physical growth of the campus outward into the borough because they simply ran out of ran out of room on a campus. Right. So they've now been going to external locations and creating these buildings. So the integration is happening regardless. Right. But the key is for the leader and to shift, you you have to say, you're going to always be facing, if you're running a a deli or a dry cleaner or you're building, you're always going to have a fork in the road. You're always going to have a couple choices. And, you know, there's never going to be obvious which way to go. But, you know, one of the characteristics of leaders that help companies shift ahead is they they decide which way to go. And they can tell a story that makes that future clear when it's foggy. People can't see around the corner. They can't see. And they they tell the story well enough that people say, yeah, you know what, let's go down there. I know it's going to be rainy. I know it's going to be windy. It's going to be cold. And we're all going to starve. But, you know, I believe you. (laughs) Uh, And if you can't get the organization to just – lean into that direction, then you end up saying, well, we'll do a little of one, we'll do a little of two, we'll do a little of three, and we'll see what happens, we'll study it. And oftentimes, if you do many things, you tend not to be as good as if you do one thing. And the other, of course, big thing that separates winners from losers is companies that shift ahead You know, just tend to be great at execution. And you look at, you know, everyone talks about Apple a lot. They weren't the first one to do the, you know, the iPad. There were lots of tablets. They were the first one to get it right <laughs> from, you know, the product design to the user interface to, you know. So, you know, being first is, is, is often helpful, but being the best or getting it right usually leads to companies shifting ahead more than just uh, we'll do a little of everything and see which one wins. Yeah, that's. Yeah, and you know the thing that we also discover is we like to, not we, you know, but as a society, let's just say in general, folks will have a tendency to look at big companies and make mistakes and say, ah ha 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 ha, look at them, bunch of incompetent losers. Like when you had the Samsung phones a couple of years ago, they were having the issues with the batteries exploding, mm-hmm. and like ah ha ha, and and and. and it's it's fairly well known because you know, here we are. It's 2018, and I still use my 2014 Samsung Galaxy Note 3. Yeah. You heard that right. We're on what about the Note 9X or something like that at this yeah. point? If you were to go buy a new one, 
here's what I do is I buy state of the art whenever I buy electronics, like whatever's the ultimate state of the art at that time, that's what I buy. And then I sort of have a competition to see how long I can keep it going. Yep. That's me. So naturally, every time that I mention anything about the Samsung Galaxy Note, like uh, the, 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 the 9 was having the batteries exploding or my power cord frayed because the thing was four years old and the cord just got old from use, and people say, ah, oh, it's because you use one of those stupid Samsungs. Look at those morons. Okay, what am I going to do? Go run out and get an iPhone? I don't think so. It's not going to work that way. But mm-hmm. – we love, but, but unfortunately, you know, we see folks that love to see forward-moving companies, forward-moving organizations, those that do the one thing that make it happen, and put that down. And why do they do that? Well, I also think that you know, oftentimes, you know, Samsung is a is a is a winner in the marketplace, even though they've had a, they had a tough couple of years. And they're a winner because you know, with the realization that. For most companies, shifting ahead means you're going to stub your toe. You're going to try something that's not going to work. If you're going to keep inventing yourself and trying new things, you're going to make mistakes. And companies that tend to have the courage to make mistakes or make mistakes because they move too fast or or just make mistakes. But the most important skill in shifting ahead is resiliency. Can they pick themselves up, figure out what was wrong, fix it, and make it right for the customer? And I think that was the case of Samsung. You know, they had a problem, but they recalled almost all the phones. They made good on their promise. You know, it was an expensive, painful year. But they realized that if they let their customers down and just said, ah, sorry, it didn't work out, go buy yourself a competitor phone, they would, and they'd yeah. never come back. So so I think, you know, part of successfully shifting your business ahead is is to um, um, realize you will make mistakes, you know that failure is okay, uh, but failure and and not fixing it is not okay. And so, part of success is to um, is to keep trying and 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 keep that agility. Well, and here's and here's another thing, and this and this could be very important when we think about how companies evolve so quickly, and sometimes mistakes or things like that will be inevitable because of the speed of implementation is when that broke about the Samsung batteries catching fire. My first thought was to say very much in public, look, I, I, I like Samsung laptops. I have three Samsung laptops. I've had the Samsung galaxy note for as long as I've had smartphones. I've had, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. And I'm going to stick with this. This is a, this is a long-term brand. This is a reliable brand. The service toward me has always been great. So mm-hmm. as far as uh, as far as uh, you tell me to get an iPhone, you get an iPhone. I'm sticking with Samsung. They're my mm-hmm. people. So what could you say about what Samsung may have done to build that level of loyalty to, in me that I'm going to be able to stay with them even when they have their batteries blowing up in their phones? Well, you know, the first thing they did was, you know, constantly, most of the time, they have the latest technology and their products are pretty much cutting edge. So, you know, if, if their Galaxy worked like uh, a Nokia, you probably wouldn't be as, as loyal to it. Uh, so the first right. thing they've done is, you know, um, have enough R&D and, uh, you know, realizing the technology field certainly been around a long time is not a compelling <laughs> promise to have. Uh, but, you know, once they, once they do that, and lots of people are doing that, uh, you know, across the 
technology category. Then um, um, uh, it's realizing that customer relationships are long-term and doing whatever it takes to make you happy. Yeah, we we had an interesting conversation, speaking of electronics, with Sony. And it used to be, in my generation, Sony owned most of the toys in your home, from the TV set to the sound system. And they were the, you know, the the uh, the, the la-di-da brand in electronics. And then they ran into lots of headwind. And when we spoke to the folks at Sony, um, you know, part of it is they lost the original mission of Sony. And the original mission when the guys started Sony many years ago was they wanted to, do, to, to make products that gave people, and they had a Japanese phrase for it, but they wanted to give people goosebumps. So when you actually saw their products and felt them and used them, you go, wow. And that's way back when to the Sony Walkman, when you first put on those headphones and could hear music coming out of a little black box like they said, Wow. And same with the original Sony television sets. You know, you'd look at the picture and go, oh, my goodness, wow, I'm getting goosebumps. And then they started to make lots of other products from shower radios to (laughs) um, all sorts of things that that didn't give people goosebumps. And now as they try to get their uh, company back on track, they're trying to go back to making sure that when they make a product, it will give some consumer goosebumps. So that's when you look at PlayStation and and the the VR glasses, and they're starting to get – Focus back to anything they put their name on is going to need to give that consumer a feeling of wow. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I think that's very true. Now we're uh, actually coming up towards the top of this. We have ten minutes left, and I do want to give you a minute or so at the end because I know you uh, wanted to share your book with us or something along those lines. I think you may surprise us. I don't know, but um, within an organization that needs a shift. Who within the organization, in your experience, is best positioned to lead that shift? Is it somebody in the C-suite? Is this an outside consultant? Who should we be looking to to lead the shift? You know, I think that um, it's a great question, Adam. You know, and it varies, but in general, the companies that do the best job of shifting is when everyone feels it's their responsibility to uh, to suggest change. And to recommend change, right? So there are two things that happen in that. Or you know, one is that everyone feels the need and to change. Everyone feels confident and open to share it. The other thing that um, is important in in, in that uh, who should lead it, and companies that tend to have hire people that have different backgrounds and come from different parts of life, because if everyone drinks the same. Kool-Aid, as I said, and everyone went to the same high school, and everyone went to the same prom, and everyone went to the same, goes to the same McDonald's, you know, and then the problem comes up. They're all going to look at that problem the same way. Uh, and so companies that tend to have people that look at the same thing but see slightly different things tend to be better uh, at shifting. Uh, and so uh, don't wait for your boss to say, you know, it's, it's not my job to figure it out, you know. Everyone in the company needs to be worried that tomorrow they may wake up and no one's going to want their product anymore. Yeah, and that and that's a scary thing to think about that uh, you know that shift could happen because you know it's funny you mentioned Sony. I haven't heard anybody mention Sony for a while, and you used to hear about Sony all the time. Yep. Yeah, they're still yeah, out there, but yeah, uh, and if and if you you know if you hang out with some gamers, you know, between Xbox and Sony, PlayStation, you know, but you're right, they 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 were the Apple of of their day. 
uh, or they were the Samsung of their day. Uh, they're not. Right. Depending on depending on what you look at, yeah. Right. And sort of tied to that is this other notion that companies that have trouble shifting ahead sort of have tomorrow as an agenda. They'll say, well, we'll plan for next year on Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> and, of course, Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock comes and you know, something else happens. Oh, we'll, we'll put it off till next week. And so if you have an attitude, we'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow. And lots of people, it's really easy to have that. But if you have that attitude of saying, well, tomorrow is tomorrow, we'll worry about it tomorrow, um, those those organizations, big and small, often get into trouble. Yeah. There was a famous quote from Andy, Andy Grove, I think, of the former CEO of Intel, saying, you know, only the paranoid survive. And that's a, maybe a bit harsh, but you have to. You know, you can't get arrogant. You can't get cocky. You can't say, "Oh, we're great. Don't worry about it." Um, yeah. Uh, and you have to always have a bit of humbleness and a bit of concern. Saying, "Gee, you know, what happens if I open the doors tomorrow and there's not a line in front? What are we going to do? Right? How do we? You know, how do we? You know, there will come a day when people won't want our milkshake anymore. Right. All right. So let's let's. Uh, you know, we have a few minutes left here. Let's shift toward you a little bit, Alan, if we can. And let's mm-hmm. speak just a little bit about your own organization so you can share a little bit. What do you do to shift ahead in your own consultancy, which which is called Metaphors? So building off a lot of the research we did for Shift Ahead, you know, one is that the, the partners we bring on board all have different backgrounds, and they all come from different ends of the business. So when we look at a client that's a company that's not growing fast enough or a business that's struggling, you know, we have different perspectives. And so we'll look to – you know, what does it look from this angle, from that angle? And because we work as a team, you know, we can sort of look at a problem and say, here, you know, here's a 360-degree view. Here's three perspectives. It's not all, oh, here's the answer. You're going to want to sell it for $5 less. So one dimension is the partners all, you know, bring a different perspective. But the other important dimension is, and we didn't talk about this that much, but the other biggest reason companies successfully shift is that they tend to just execute something brilliantly in the marketplace. You know, no one wins because they had a good idea. Uh, the only way you win is you have a good idea and then you made a great product or a great service. You have to flip from a good idea to doing something and delivering something great. And so what we then do is once we say, all right, the, the way you're going to grow your business is X or Y, then we work with some um really great experts on our team who can, if you need great packaging, do great packaging, or if you need great ads, do great ads, or if you need great social media, do great. So, because the other thing happening in the in the world of marketing is that everyone claims to do everything. Oh, we do that too, or we do that too. And I think, oh yeah, oh, uh-huh. you know, it's like if you're building a house, yeah, you could have one person build your whole house and maybe that person will do a pretty good job. But if you're lucky and you're building a house, you'll have you know, maybe one person do the design and another person do the plumbing and another person do the electric because you wouldn't want your electrician doing your plumbing <laughs> and you wouldn't want your That's kitchen true. person doing the living room and you wouldn't want your plumber installing your television set in the living room. <laughs> uh, and businesses like that too. So part of success is to figure out what you need and then try to get the right experts who are really good at what they do but not great at everything or not average at everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think you're right about that. So, uh, you know, I just you know think about this whole thing, and I've seen so many companies that just fail 
to make these shifts, and I feel so sorry for them. I mean, one example would be Kodak. I mean, how I remember not even 20 years ago, disposable cameras, and I remember you took some pictures from last night, and you still have four exposures, so you go take pictures of squirrels so you can get it developed today. I mean, uh, yeah. but uh, and and they and companies fail to think ahead that way. I remember Blockbuster Video used to go there and rent uh, DVDs all the time, and yeah, now we don't even think. Of, yeah, I, Blockbuster could have been Netflix. You know they, you know they, they, you know they Literally. were in the movie, movie distribution business, and they just didn't think it was important. You know, if you remember back, Netflix didn't start, you know, sending you movies on your on your computer. They started mailing you DVDs, so you didn't have to go to the lineup at the Blockbuster. You could be sure Saturday night, if if Netflix mails you a DVD, you know, when you get to the Saturday night, you'd have the movie you want to watch. And oftentimes, you went to a Blockbuster, and by the time you got there, you know, the movie you wanted was long gone, and you ended up with uh, you know, three mice on an island or something, you know, some movie you never heard of. Yeah, and then, and then you, see, you know, think one step further. I mean, in this day and age, you don't even think too much about DVDs. Uh, we right, think about, you know, Amazon Prime, Netflix, and then right. the info product business. I can't remember the last time somebody sold a course where you even had the option to get DVDs. I mean, I know there's still fulfillment companies out there. I know it still exists. But everybody I deal with long since stopped printing DVDs and put it all on membership sites. Yep, exactly. So, you know, and, and again, Netflix didn't think of their business as mainly distributing content. They said, well, gee, people are coming to us for great content. Why don't we make our own great content? And so they were smart enough and lucky enough to be able to then not just wait for Universal or uh, 20th Century Fox to make a movie. They they said, we have money. Let's go hire a, a great writer and director and we'll make our own movies. Absolutely. All right, so we are pretty much at the top of the hour. We have about two and a half minutes left, and I want to give one of those to you. Uh, Alan, somebody wants to go to the next level with you. Somebody wants to discover more about the shift-ahead principle, perhaps work with you. What What are the next steps? What do you have to offer our listeners today? Well, they can, you know, of course, you know, go to shiftaheadbook.com and see some more of the book and hear some more stories and, you know, also – you know, potentially buy the book because there are a lot of great lessons for any business, um, big or small. Or they can go to uh, metaphors.co, C-O, and learn about how we take some of those principles and apply them to helping businesses prevent themselves from becoming their father's Oldsmobile. Great. I think I'm definitely going to uh, to uh, pick, up my, pick up my copy of your book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. So Alan Adamson of metaphors.co and author of shift ahead how the best companies stay relevant in a fast-changing world thank you so much for being with us today it's been an honor and an education adam thank you so much for inviting me have a great day for everybody listening this is adam homie host of the business creators radio show where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com or the distribution network of your choice. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.